0: how many of you feel like you're back in the 60s a little bit here? How many of you remember the 60s? I guess that'd be something. If you remember the 60s, maybe you still feel like you're back in the 60s. Um, with these protests and demonstrations, it's been amazing you know, how much it's, it's kind of bringing back just a, a lot of a – it's more of a vibe for me, I guess. Uh, someone turned me on to a uh, a documentary that I can highly recommend. It's called Laurel Canyon. And it's just about the the rise of the music in the 60s from all of those artists that ended up just living along Laurel Canyon uh, outside of Los Angeles. And just hearing the music again, seeing a lot of the images from the 60s, just kind of reinforced this feeling that I've been having of kind of deja vu all over again. And so... If you think about the nature of the protests and the demonstrations, first against the lockdowns and now against the police uh, actions and um, inequality in general in our society, it sort of feels like we're sailing through this perfect storm between COVID and, and what has happened now. There's this confluence of events. It's almost like we were prepared during the COVID lockdown and those protests for what is happening now. And it's raising all these questions and you know, creating a, a need for some re-examination, I suppose, of ourselves and, and our society at large. And a lot of those questions, of course, are really not appropriate for us to talk about here in this venue. But I got a question from someone who contacted me through LinkedIn, of all places, and uh, he was he, he did the link, and then... Uh, he knew that I was a pastor because uh, that's revealed on my LinkedIn page. And he's a financial advisor who had several other pastors as clients, which is probably why he was contacting me from the main point, right? But he also asked, and it was a really interesting question, he was asking that in the face of all of these protests, in the face of, of the churches being closed down, and a lot of people you know, protesting against that, he says, what do you make of Romans 13? How do you deal with Romans 13? Because he said, for me, it is so sad and so frustrating to see the divisions that are being caused and are starting to open up between pastors and churches and members of churches. And he's seeing that the divisions are rising and all of this unrest is rising. And what do you make of Romans 13? How many know what Romans 13 says? Okay, well, let's get into it. It's, it's really an interesting um, passage by Paul, and if you go to Romans 13, right at verse 1, I'm going to read from a, uh, a contemporary English version because it just seemed to flow better and get the sense a little better than the NASB, but I'm sure Brandon will get the NASB up so you can see how many differences there are. Keep me honest here. But Paul says, everyone must obey state authorities. How do you like that? as an opening line. Everyone must obey state authorities because no authority exists without God's permission, and the existing authorities have been put there by God. Whoever opposes the existing authority opposes what God has ordered, and anyone who does so will bring judgment on himself. For rulers are not to be feared by those who do good, but by those who do evil. Would you like to be unafraid of those in authority? Then do what is good, and they will praise you because they are God's servants working for your own good. But if you do evil, then be afraid of them, because their power to punish is real. They are God's servants, and carry out God's punishment on those who do evil. For this reason, you must obey the authorities, not just because of God's punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. That is also why you pay taxes, because the authorities are working for God when they fulfill their duties. Pay them what you owe them, pay them your personal and property taxes, and show respect and honor for them all. Be under obligation to no one. The only obligation you have is to love one another. Whoever does this has obeyed the law. How many are you with are you worth with Paul right now? Are you feeling it? <laughs> Obey government authorities, no matter what you know. Think about what Christian people of faith have been doing for the last two months, you know, for all the demonstrations that have been going on. Paul is basically making three points here. Let's, let's go through them and see if we can start to put this in some kind of order. The premise that he has first is that no authority exists without God's permission, And the existing authorities have been put there by God. Now, we've said this over and over again. This is a Hebrew idiomatic way of speaking because they believe that everything happened by God's ordination. God was was absolute. He was sovereign. He was the sole existing power. So nothing happened without God's say-so, basically. So anything that did happen happened because God ordained it because it happened and for no other reason. And so the same thing is going on here. If authority is in place, it's because God ordained it to be in place. This is a Hebrew way of thinking. But is it true? This is something that we need to think about. Part of the problem that we have when we come across a passage like this that seems to fly in the face of even ethics and morality and everything that Jesus taught is the notion of our idea of the inspiration of scripture. And so that can get in between us and being able to get to the real understanding of what the Scripture is about. This is a Hebrew way of thinking. It's put out throughout the Old Testament especially, but it it's here in the New Testament as well. But is that the real way of things, or is it being described as what the Hebrews understood at a particular place in time? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. Secondly, he goes into a practical point. Have you ever heard someone, maybe your mom said, to you, because I think my mom said to me, always drive your car so that it's a pleasure to see a policeman. Have you ever heard that one before? Well, you heard it here first then. That's pretty good. Always drive in such a way that it's a pleasure to see a cop. This is the basic point that he's making here. You got nothing to fear from these authorities that you're complaining about and pushing against and resisting as long as you're doing what is right, you're doing what is lawful. Only when you do something outside of that do you need to be afraid. So if you are, it's kind of like if you studied the test, you really want to take the test, right? Everybody else doesn't. Same sort of idea. So he's coming in with a practical argument here. And then finally, he closes with an appeal. And the appeal is to basically adhere to the law of love. You know, don't have any obligations hanging out there except the obligation to love and to love as Jesus loved us. And so we can all agree with that one. But what about those first two? Is Paul convincing you yet? (laughs) You know, what he says here leaves so many unanswered questions. And the main one is, what if this government is oppressive? What if this government itself is amoral, unethical, evil? Do we have a duty to obey or a duty to disobey? This is something that we obviously have talked about. Is is Paul's injunction here even moral? Is it even ethical? But I'll tell you what, Paul's just getting warmed up. I want to read a few more here for you. Take a look at Colossians 3, starting in verse 22. Let's see if we can really get ourselves into some hot water here. Paul writes, slaves, so now he's writing to slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. Huh? not with external service alone, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. And then crossing the line on to chapter 4, masters grant your slaves justice and fairness knowing that you too have a master in heaven so he's kind of pointing out a chain of command here all right the slaves are relating to the ma- uh, you know submitting to the masters but the masters have to submit to god and if that happens then the master is going to be just the master is going to be fair and the life of the slave is going to be a lot better but does that justify slavery Does it justify turning a blind eye to the systemic practice of slavery in the first century? Look at Ephesians 5.22. Okay, ladies, you ready for this one? Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, just as he did with slaves, he kind of throws that and tucks it in at the end. Now, if you read the rest of the the passage there, he's going to do this analogy where he talks about husbands, love your wives as you love your own bodies, as you love yourself, and he expands on that. But still, this is another radical culture shift that he's trying to make. Not about wives submitting to husbands. That was cultural. That was baked in the cake there. But husbands also loving their wives and being just because husbands had legal permission and authority to be very harsh with their wives. And so many scholars have said, hey, he's trying to really balance the scales here. But ladies, do you feel balanced in this? I mean, does it still justify the inequality That Paul is maintaining here in this passage. Kind of sounds like strike three for Paul, right? But he's not done yet. There's more. 1 Corinthians 14, starting at verse 34, women should remain silent in the churches. Oh my gosh. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And in 1 Timothy 2, he also says they can't teach men or have any authority over men. Now, this sounds outrageous. It was the Jewish norm at the time. And these were Jewish communities, largely even though they were in Greece. And so men and women were segregated within the synagogue. There was a lattice that went down the middle of the space. And the women were on one side and the men were on the other the men were able to talk and, and discourse, and the women were not. So, again, he's maintaining the status quo here. Why is Paul not championing change? Why is he not championing social justice? But he takes it even further. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 7. He says, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. How was he himself were? He was single, and he was living a single and and celibate life. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they just remain even as I am. In other words, don't get married or remarried. But if they don't have self-control, then let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And then moving right on to the 10th verse. But to the married I give instructions. Not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, interesting distinctions he's making, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, She must not send her husband away. Okay, have I dug my hole deep enough yet? Let's see if I can get out of it in any way. Um, Let's review. Let's review what's been going on here. What Paul is basically saying is several things through all of these verses. He's saying, first, obey any standing authority and any existing laws. Pay your taxes, pay your bills, and respect your leaders, no matter what. If you're married, stay married. If you're single, stay single. If you're a slave, stay a slave. And if you're a woman, don't fight tradition, right? Just submit. Don't speak. Don't teach. And if you're a husband, be loving, be fair. If you're a master, be loving, be fair. Little bones there thrown that seem too little too late. What are we to make of all of this? Where in the heck is Paul going? If The state authorities over these last few months have been confusing. Has Paul helped us clear it up any? (laughs) Obviously, if this hasn't been cleared up in the last 2,000 years, we're not going to do it this morning either. But when we look at the context of these passages, we can find clues for the meaning. And we can find principles that are going to help us to move through. Ultimately, it's going to be up to each one of you to decide how you process these how you take your course based on any principles that you find but let's dig in a little bit at 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1 the the, the, the that's the beginning of the chapter of most of the passages we just read and the first thing that he writes is now concerning the matters I, you wrote me about now concerning the matters you wrote me about in other words he is answering questions that they asked and this is what happened so much, especially in the early church. They had Jesus who gave certain principles that were broad, and they were, they were deeply personal. They were interior principles. But as soon as you move them out and apply them to a group all over the eastern Mediterranean, in, in different localities, and in, in different cultures, how do they apply? And the inevitable questions always come up. What about this and what about that? Yeah, now what happens if my if my wife or my husband remains an unbeliever. Do I have to stay with him or stay with her? These are the type of questions that they wrote to Paul about, and he was writing back to them. So many times we've said in here that the epistles are like a Jeopardy game. You get the answers, but you don't get the questions. And that is difficult for us, because if we don't know the question, then we don't know the context within which the answer is true. Context is everything. The way that you ask the question, the circumstances that Paul is speaking into are going to be huge in terms of determining whether those circumstances, those answers, still apply to us in different circumstances. 1 Corinthians 7.10, he says, these instructions are from the Lord. This is where he's talking to married people and he says, stay married. He says, this isn't from me. This is the Lord telling you. Now, in context, he's talking about married couples whom both are believers, both are part of the church, because he contrasts that a second later when he says, for others, and these would be mixed marriages, mixed in the sense of one is within the church and one is not, he says, I'm going to give you my answer, but it's not from the Lord. I don't know if it's from the Lord. I'm going to tell you what I think you ought to do. And he says, stay with them. If they're willing to stay with you, you stay with them. Keep the status quo. But it's so fascinating because what is happening here is we're seeing Paul in action. We're seeing Paul thinking on his feet. We're seeing Paul answering questions on the fly and trying to deal with the real issues that are tearing the church apart. And he's trying to keep it together. And the Bible records these changes and these answers in real time. We get to see almost an evolution of thought from beginning to end as we read through the earlier epistles to the later epistles as they were working this stuff out and trying to get it together. And I know that flies totally in the face of a lot of our understandings of inspiration, that the, that God's word is completely finished, but the evidence is showing us something different. Paul is saying, I don't know if this is from the Lord. I'm going to give you what I think you ought to do. This one, absolutely. The Lord spoke. Jesus spoke on this, right? So he's trying to work through the issues presented. He's trying to apply Jesus' principles to these specific needs while he's under fire, and he's trying to keep the church together. Now, I'll tell you what, I can really feel his pain in that These last few months, trying to find ways to keep our community together by remote control, by electronics, by by texting and calling. And then as people are starting to come back in, how do we service all the different ideas of what social distancing should be? Should we be wearing, wearing masks or not? How do we do this? Things have gotten so polarized. Questions have been flooding to me, you know. In much the same way, I suppose, that questions flooded to Paul. You know, what do we do about this? What do we do about that? What about this? What about that? So it's just part of just working in community. And I love that the Bible preserves that for us, shows us this in operation so that we can look at it and see, hey, it's the same thing that's happening now that was happening then. How did they handle it? Paul did the best he could answered when he knew it was from God's authority answered from his own authority when that was all he had he made the best choice that he could and then had to see how it played out so everything that he's talking about is in the contents of context of this present crisis this present distress as it's sometimes translated that present crisis, that, that distress is the context within which his answers are going to be true. Now, if that context changes, then the answer as an application of principles, that may change too. So what is the context here? What is Paul's present crisis or distress? Let's take a look at, at 1 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 26. And let's see what he says here. He says, I think then that this is good. I think that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. See how he's working this out? But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. Within this distress, okay, What is the distress? We don't know. He doesn't say. It's maddening. Scholars have just scoured everything that they can find, both historically inside the Bible, outside the Bible, to try to figure out what is he referring to. Probably referring to the persecution that was going on of the church at this time, both from Greek and Roman authorities, but also from Jewish authorities. They were getting, they were in a crossfire. It was difficult. They were getting more and more of a boot of oppression placed on them as making it difficult for them to live. That's probably the crisis. There was also growing social unrest at the time, both in Judea and within the Roman Empire. So because of this crisis, also he adds that the time is short. The people in the first generations after Jesus believed that he was coming back in their lifetime, They believed that the time was short, that they had to prepare. And he's saying, you know what? With everything that's going on, with everything that's on you, with such a short time before Jesus returned, he said, just keep the status quo. Don't be fighting City Hall. Just focus inward. Focus on your connection with God. So why isn't Paul advocating social justice? because he's trying to bring the interior revolution for his people first, before they engage in an exterior revolution. Let's back up a few verses and go to verse 18, and maybe he'll make it a little bit clearer for us. He says, was any man called, okay, for him calling is to be called to the faith, to be baptized into the faith, to join the community of believers, Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. That's sort of an obvious one, right? Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? Then he is not to be circumcised. And this was a major fight going on right then, that the Jews were saying that anyone who came into the followership of Jesus had to be circumcised. He's making this argument. Just stay as you are. We just sang that, right? Come as you are. Stay as you are. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you were able to become free, rather, do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Free in the Lord. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now, what is he saying? He's basically saying that the exterior circumstances are nothing compared to living this law of love, compared to moving into this interior connection with God. Don't get your perspective all mixed up. If you can get that part first, if you can get the interior part first, that's everything. That's going to bring you through. But what if Paul knew that there was more time here? What if he didn't think that everything was so compressed? Maybe he would have given a different answer. Maybe he would have once people had the the interior revolution settled in them enough to then begin to work for social change, to begin to work for social justice. Because I'll tell you what, Paul himself seemed to believe in equality. It appears so from the other writings. Did you know that he commissioned a woman to Rome, to the Roman church? Only place it happens in the entire New Testament. He commissions a woman. Take a look at Romans 16, right of verse 1. He is writing the letter to Rome from Corinth, and he sent this woman, Phoebe, probably with the letter. She probably handed the letter to the to the church, or she was with those who did, she was coming from Corinth to Rome, and he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who was a servant of the church, which is at Cancrea. Servant there, if you translate it, means deacon. She was an official deacon. She was a minister of the church at Corinth, and he is now commissioning her to work with the church at Rome. Phoebe, who was a servant of the church, which is at Cancrea, which was right next to Corinth, that you receive her in the Lord, in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever manner she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well." And after that, if you read the rest of that passage, he greets person after person after person and about half of them are women. He's greeting the women equally with the men as being foundational and institutional in the Roman church. At Galatians 3.28, look what he says here, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, no distinction, all are one in God, in Christ His main focus was not to rock the social boat, but to work within it to interior purpose, to make that shift in people's hearts in the time that was remaining. So what we need to do now as we consider all this is to decide whether we think those answers That applied in that present crisis, in that context, still apply in our present distress, in our context. Now you may ask, are we allowed to do that? (laughs) With our notion of inspiration, are we allowed to make those kind of choices? There is a principle in hermeneutics, which is the art and science of biblical interpretation of prescriptive and descriptive texts or prescriptive and descriptive commands. The idea here there is that certain texts are prescriptive in that they are evergreen. They are describing something, they are presenting something that is absolutely true all the time, everywhere, every when, for all people. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you, prescriptive. Love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Prescriptive. There will never be a time or context in which that's not true. But then there are descriptive texts and descriptive commands that simply describe what was going on at a certain place, at a certain time. When the Bible describes some heinous act that someone is doing, that is not true. It is not reflective of God's nature. It is just describing what is going on. But getting into areas that are more difficult for us to discern, when Paul makes these commands, is it prescriptive or descriptive? Now, the man who asked me the question at first about Romans 13 was saying, how do you deal with this? Because he's looking at it as prescriptive. He's looking at it under that type of understanding of inspiration. How do you square this? We got pastors who are civilly disobedient. How are we supposed to square that with what Paul says here at Romans 13? But I think we know because we have seen, and they had seen too, governments that were so oppressive, so amoral, so evil, that you couldn't possibly respect it and you couldn't possibly obey it and still follow this law of love that we're following. In that context, though, it makes sense what Paul was trying to say. This is not the fight that you should be focusing on right now. First, have the internal revolution. Have that full transformation. By then, time will be up. <laughs> but if it weren't, then maybe there would be then the move outward to see what we could do. But this is where Paul is going with it, what he's trying to get us to understand. Prescriptive and descriptive This is a time-honored way of interpreting the Bible, and we need to use all these tools to try to understand. How do we tell the difference between the two? Well, we do the kind of contextual and linguistic work that we just did in here to try to look and see and ascertain as much as we possibly can. We look at the big principles that are being brought across and see how they square with other big principles. What is Paul trying to do here? He's trying to get everyone to move into the poverty of spirit that Jesus talks about in the first beatitude. You're blessed when you're poor in spirit. And we don't understand what that means anymore, but it just means the attitude of poverty, even if you're rich. It means humble. It means unassuming. It means non-domineering. It means someone who sees everyone as equal, not better, not worse, and identifies with Everyone. This poverty of spirit, this idea of the anavim that we talked about in here as well, this is the essential position from which any relationship with God is possible. You want to be connected with someone, you've got to be poor in spirit. You want to be connected with God, you must be anavim. You must have that attitude of dependence and willingness to submit, whether it's in a marriage relationship or whether it's in a friendship or anything If we are unwilling to submit to the other in any way, to be interdependent in any way, what kind of relationship do we have? Paul is trying to get that across to the people. He's basically saying, everybody has a boss. Everybody has a boss, don't you? You got a boss. Everybody has a boss. Now, in his culture, the men's boss was the government and the women's boss was the man and the slave's boss was the master. In our culture, thank God, it's not the same. We have different bosses, but we all have a boss. And ultimately we have God that we answer to. If we can't learn, if we can't practice with all the bosses that we have in our lives, this way of submitting to the authority while maintaining our own identity, being able to love, and connect, be other-centered, to compromise, we will never be able to enter the kingdom. We will never be able to connect as Jesus is trying to get us to connect. Look, we all have rights, inalienable rights, and those rights are worth fighting for when they've been abridged in any way. Absolutely. For ourselves and fighting for others and their rights. But I think what Paul is saying here is that if we can fight the interior revolution first, learn to live this law of love, which includes submitting to others, then we can learn the freedom of being submitting, submitted to something greater than ourselves, to someone other than ourselves. And then when we fight the exterior revolution, We can do it with honor and we can do it with love and we can do it in a way that honors everyone in the process, but we have to do this in the right order. Be transformed inside, renew your mind first before you turn it outward to everyone else around you. There is an appointed time for everything. And I wanted to finish by reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 right at verse 1. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to throw stones, and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to shun embracing, a time to search, and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart, and a time to sew together, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. There is an appointed time for everything. But sometimes it's hard to know what time it is, isn't it? And it's hard to know if our motives are pure in the things that seem so essential that we should fight for. What Jesus and Paul are saying, if we fight that interior battle first if we can learn the submission that is required to live this law of love that is central in our faith, then we'll know the appointed time. And more importantly, we'll know how to fight in love. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would help carry us through our perfect storm, through this present distress and crisis. We ask that you would allow us to feel your presence as we go. Not essential, but it would be so reassuring that as we turn to you, as we show up to you, that we also can be reassured that there is presence, there is meaning and purpose. And as we choose our own response to everything that's going on, our personal response, even if they're just words, but the actions we take, help us to put it in this space that we are always looking at everything we are trying to accomplish through your eyes, through this law of love. To never break that law in order to fix something that looks so broken. Help us to find that connection, Lord, in everything that we do. And thank you for being with us all this way. Father, never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.